loves as well. Um, I don't get to hold her, actually, is what happens because of that. Mom just holds her. But, uh, no, she is great. So thank you guys for the prayers um, and the well wishes and the flowers. We got a few flowers and cards, and thank you guys so much for that. Uh, but there are kind of moments, I really believe, in our lives that, that tend to kind of transcend life, don't they? And, like, for me, like, the birth of that, now my second daughter um, is one of those moments, and as well as with my first. But if you've ever been in a room where a child is born, it is bloody and messy and gross and beautiful, like, all rolled into one, and there's yelling and screaming and madness. Like, it is, it is just, like, the craziest experience. Um, and and I, I found it, like, so kind of apropos that it's the week before Easter, Right, because Easter is about kind of new birth and resurrection and new life and, and everything kind of bursting in its ugliness and its goodness, and, and, and we get to celebrate that next week. And so uh, get excited for that because that is something to, to be excited about. But, but these moments, right, like, like for me, the birth of my kids, the moment my wife walked down the aisle at our wedding, that was one of those moments that seemed to like transcend life. Um, you know, I've had meals with friends where it was like something more is going on here than just a good piece of steak and a good glass of wine. Like, there are moments where we all feel this, right? We've had these experiences. And, and what I tried to do in my opening sermon um, um, on this series, the Sermon on the Mount, a couple of weeks ago, was, was talk about that. That those moments that seem to transcend life, to me, those are the moments that are kind of breaking through. The kingdom of God is breaking into this moment here and now. And we get to kind of experience those. But um, before I get too far ahead of myself, because um, I will, um, if you could pull out this sheet in your bulletin. Um, we have this sheet here. And uh, we, we just want to continue to encourage you that, that as we go in this month of prayer for, for March, um, we are praying for kind of those inbreaking moments of the kingdom of God. And, and one of the ways uh, Aaron put this together, it's just fantastic for us, is, is this is just a way to pray the scriptures um, if you're not familiar with that, I do that almost every time I spend time with the Lord, I pray the scriptures. That's just something that in me, I love, I love old prayers. I love people that, that, like, I love taking prayers and then reading them back. I know some people are like, I just love being spontaneous and praying from the heart. That's awesome as well. It's just, I'm not as bent that way. And so I like to read prayers, read scripture, and kind of use that as a framework or a springboard for my own prayers as well um, and, and kind of mix that in. So what we've done here is um, there's some scripture passages. And, and after the scripture, you can, um, there's a kind of a prayer that, that we've written out that allows you to, to just use that scripture as a framework for prayer. So if you're unfamiliar with it, this is a great guide to that. Um, it's got a few blanks in there because we really want to focus on praying on behalf of others. And so um, this week, we really want to hone in on how are we praying for others, especially with, with Easter coming. It's a great opportunity to not only just pray for them, but then invite them to church in that. And so um, there's some blanks in there. And then we ended each uh, of the prayers with, uh, you know, uh, your, God, may your kingdom come, your will be done in the life of and whoever you're kind of praying for in that moment. And the reason we did that is we just kind of wanted to anchor it in the Sermon on the Mount, right? The two weeks ago when I, when I prayed that, we said that essentially the essence of all prayer is your kingdom come, your will be done. And so we just kind of put that at the end to, to anchor it in what we're doing week to week in this space. Um, again, if you were to, you know, two years from now, if you're praying scripture, you don't necessarily have to have that passage. None of this is a have to, right? This isn't like a formula you do. It's just a springboard, a framework for that. Um, and so take this, keep this with you. Um, we won't be putting these in the prayer wall for the sake of kind of confidentiality and anonymity, um, you know, the names you write down. Um, just keep that paper with us so we're not using the prayer wall this week. Um, but, but use this, use this as a kind of a springboard for prayer um, going forward in that. But um, with that, let's, uh, will you guys pray with me as we jump into the message this morning? <clears throat> 
Heavenly Father, God, we thank you, Lord, for um, this space, this time to be together. God, this time to gather um, as the body of Christ. Um, Lord, we walk through these doors with so much. Um, got so much baggage, so many things throughout our week. Got the joys, the blessings, the hardships. Um, got all of that we bring through these doors. And so, God, I pray that, that this morning you would maybe remind us that you are, you are the God just as much outside these walls as you are in these walls. Um, that the things we bring in, we don't bring in to meet you, God, but you are actually there outside these walls as well. And so, God, as we meet, as we gather, as we open the scriptures, as we've been singing, as we take communion, um, Lord, open our eyes to, to make us more aware of your presence. Um, God, the things we carry don't scare you. They don't, um, you know, make you want to leave us, but God, that, that, that they are a part of us. So, Lord, make us more aware this morning of your presence, that we can see you, that we can feel you, God, in new ways. So, God, we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Genesis chapter 28, we see a story of a guy named Jacob. And we're familiar with this story. And Jacob was a bit of kind of a shady guy. He was a guy who would often deceive people. He, he would cheat to get ahead. Um, if you remember in kind of the, the chapters prior to 28, um, we saw that his dad was kind of on the fritz. He's towards the end of his life. And so he deceives his dad. He tricks his dad into thinking he's his brother in order to attain a double blessing. And so he's cheating his own brother by lying to his father in order to get a double blessing. Well, if you are a brother, you know that other brothers don't like that, right? So his brother, I, was, I have an older brother um, who's much smaller now, and I can beat him up, but that was always the joke. But, but he is the older brother. But, uh, but I have a brother, and if I did that, he would not like it. And just like that, Jacob's brother begins to chase him, saying, I'm going to kill you, right? Which is, again, typical brother language. But he chases him, and what we find in, in Genesis 28 is Jacob is now on the run for his life, after having cheated his very family out of blessing, and we find him on the side of a road in a ditch, sleeping with a stone for a pillow, right? A bit of a dire circumstance. And he's there, and, and as he pulls this stone up, as he nestles up close to that, he has this dream. And this dream has been where we got the phrase, um, Jacob's ladder, okay? We know that kind of that little toy or whatever. Um, but Jacob's ladder is this dream he has. And in this dream, there is a ladder from the, the heaven to earth, and it says the angels are descending and ascending on earth. And so he wakes up from this dream, and he is like, what just happened? Like, he has this moment, and this is the verse we see. It says, then Jacob awoke from his deep sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He says, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid, and he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. A man on the run because he's cheating and lying to his own family on the side of a road in a ditch says this is the very gateway of heaven. So what I tried to do a couple weeks ago is present this idea that the kingdom of God is here now. That the kingdom of heaven I challenged us with is not some place we go when we die. It's not some distant far off place but it is present and active in this space. That if we only think of the heavens elsewhere, that changes the way we live in this life now. But what Jesus is constantly doing is he's saying the, the, the heavens are here among us now. That surely the Lord is in this place and we don't know it. At a pragmatic level, I think most of us live like Jacob. We live with this idea that, that God is, you know, the language we use in church is he's only in our hearts. 
Okay, which I understand why we use that language. But what that language does, though, is it also confines God. It's not necessarily wrong, but at the same time, we have to understand that that means that we think God is only in our hearts. Or he's only the old man in the sky, as we see in movies, right? Like, like we get this image that he's far off and distant, but what Jacob does, this sinful man in the dirt, in, the, in a ditch on the side of the road, says, surely the Lord is in this place. The gateway of heaven is here. Right, for me, when, when we're in that, that, that hospital room and my wife is whisked out, and like, I'm, I'm one of those guys that you, you generally, you know how I feel because I wear my heart on my sleeve. Like, I just can't hide my emotions. So I'm an ugly crier, like an ugly, ugly. I'm like the snotter, you know what I'm talking about? Where you're like, and you can't like pull it together. That's me, all right? So just hope you never have to see me cry because I cry and it's bad. But, but for me, like, I'm in that hospital room. My wife has just been whisked off after this dramatic, like, Literally, probably 30 seconds, all these nurses run in, they, they sweep and take her out, and I'm like, fear is just beginning to kind of overwhelm me. Because I'm convinced that birth is one of those like, all right, here it goes. Like, there's like, the doctors simply are kind of facilitating the madness. I'm convinced of it. And so, so they, she's rushed out, and I'm left in this empty room now, and, and, and after they kind of get her kind of settled, this nurse comes in, and she looks at me, and she just says, everything is Okay. And I remember kind of that look in her face was like, to me, that was the presence of God. It was, it was like surely the Lord was in the hospital room and I didn't even know it. That, that the blessing of the doctors, like I, I don't know what would have happened if we didn't have doctors that day. And so I am forever grateful for the common grace of medicine and the ability to have a C-section and what that all means. But like they whisked her away and we went in like a 10 minute stretch from being a family of three to all of a sudden not knowing what was going to happen to a baby here. Like it was just a whirlwind. But it was again this moment where it was like surely the Lord is in this place. And I didn't even know it. That God is not distant. He is not far off. He is not somewhere else. But that the kingdom is now and not yet, if you remember the language I used. That the kingdom is in breaking here and now, that the resurrection is a sign that the world doesn't work the way it always has, because someone that was dead is now alive, right? And, and that it's now, but it's also that Jesus will come back, he will consummate it, he will bring the fullness of the kingdom of God kind of at the end of time, when it will be fully established, but that we live kind of in this in-between with the availability of the kingdom of God here and now. And so the verse we use for this out of Matthew is Matthew chapter 4, and we said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And again, that word repent, we have to think of it more as change your perspective. Think of the world in a whole different way. That yes, it means forgiving for sins, but it means also just think about the way the world is different now. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it is present, it is not somewhere else. That the availability of the kingdom is here, now, in this place. Because if we think of God as distant and far off, we think of then we have to do something to attain to him. And so we go to church, we come to this building thinking this is the house of God, that God is in these walls, right? But he's just as much the king outside of these walls as he is in these walls, that he's just as much the God in your Mondays and Tuesdays as he is on your Sundays. Like God is, is the God that, that we have, again, this perspective that we can find God to certain places. But what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, what he's doing when he proclaim, proclaims the kingdom, is he's saying that that God is present here now in this place. And unless we get that kind of perspective, I don't think we have a chance to understand the Sermon on the Mount the way Jesus intended it. Because if everything is about later, if everything is about just eternal life at some distant place, 
then why rearrange the chairs on the Titanic? Because it's going down. But Jesus brought a new message. He brought a message of the kingdom kind of coming in this place, in this time here and now. So with your Bibles, flip over to Matthew chapter, we're actually going to start in verse, uh, chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, and we're going to spend the entirety of our time here, so you won't bounce around. Um, you can just leave your kind of Bibles open to that passage. But um, we, what we see here is, again, Matthew 4, 17, as he declares the kingdom, and then his fame begins to spread. It's, this crowd is, is beginning to follow Jesus as he calls his few disciples in 18 through 22. And then in, in verse 23, we're going to see the picture of who Jesus is speaking to. Um, and it's important to remember that when, when the Bible was written, chapters and verses weren't there, okay? Those were added much, much later for our benefit, which it is good to have those. Um, but I think what it does at times is, like, for instance, I would have started chapter 5, beginning in verse 23 of chapter 4, uh, but other people are far smarter than me, and so they probably have much better reasons why they put it where it is. But it, it, it causes us to kind of break at times when maybe the scriptures don't intend us to break, okay? So, so we're going to start in 23, which I really think leads right into what Jesus is saying in chapter 5. So in, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, it says this, and he went throughout all of Galilee, Galilee is where Jesus was born and raised, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, the epileptics, the paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Chapter 5, verse 1. To seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Okay, so we have to get the picture of who Jesus is speaking to, because if we understand who Jesus is speaking to, it helps us understand what he's saying. Okay, and so we see this picture where, where as he's teaching in the synagogues of Galilee, the, the, the diseased, the afflicted, they begin to come to him, and Jesus begins healing these people. And so you see in this crowd, there are those who are broken and sick and hurting and in need of healing. And really, it's the ones that the religious would say are dirty and unclean. And so you see this kind of, this, this mess of people kind of following Jesus. And then we get to um, verse 25, and it says, And great crowds followed him from the Galilee and the Decapolis. Okay, so the Galilee represents the Jews. They were a, a conservative, very religious. They're kind of the religious establishment. Okay, and so, so that crowd is there. The Jews are there, but then we also have what's called the Decapolis. And the Decapolis is, a, is actually 10 cities that were known as the Decapolis. They represent kind of the non-Jews. Okay, they're, they're more the political establishment. They're those who don't necessarily believe in God. They're the ones who the Jews would actually say to avoid often. Okay, and so, so you've got this kind of mixture. You've got the sick, the hurting, the in pain, the, the dirty, the unclean. You've got the religious, the ultra-conservative, ultra-religious. You have more of the liberals who, who are on this side in the Decapolis, who don't follow God, who don't follow the things of the Lord. And you see this kind of mixture of humanity, or what some would say is kind of like a raw of humanity. It is a just kind of mess of people. Right, like all sorts across the entire spectrum of humanity you have in this crowd. And so Jesus sees this crowd, says he goes up on the mountain, and he begins to teach, and his disciples come to him. So in front of kind of this whole crowd, you have the disciples, right? And so Jesus teaches to the disciples, but the crowd is present and listening as well. 
All right, so, so he's teaching to the mess of humanity. He's teaching to the disciples, and he's kind of intermixed with them. And so then he begins to teach in, verse, in chapter 2, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 5, verse 2, it says, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what I think Jesus is doing here is he's, he's beginning to, what Dallas Willard calls it, it's like he's doing a little bit of show and tell. Is that to understand that the crowd is there, as Jesus is walking amongst the crowd and he's saying, blessed are the poor, right there, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, blessed are those who mourn, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he goes, and it's almost like he's working with the crowd as an illustration of those who are blessed. Now, to understand the Beatitudes, as we call them, um, we have to recognize a bit about the language here. And, and we get the word beatitude, if you've heard that before, because when it was translated into Latin, it became the word beatus, which is where we get beatitudes. And so we like to say cute things like these are the attitudes to be, um, which I'm going to kind of just say is totally wrong uh, in a bit, but that's okay. We'll get there. Um, but to understand this word, we have to understand this word blessed. And this, uh, this word blessed is the word mercurios. And mercurios is pretty difficult to translate into English. English does a pretty poor job at understanding this. Some translations you might have say happy, um, and I get why they say happy. I don't think happy is, is necessarily the best translation. But what they're trying to get at is it's more this picture of God has done so much for me that I become, I well up with happiness. Does that kind of make sense? That, that the happiness comes from God's action, that God is, is, is on our side. It's, it's like the divine is saying, I'm with you. And so this word blessed, okay, means like God is saying, I am with the poor in spirit. Like I am on the side of the poor in spirit. Okay, and so when we begin to, to understand that, then we recognize that, that the Beatitudes maybe are different than what we've been taught our whole life. Because if you're like me, I was taught this as a list of things to do. That I was taught to read this and say, blessed are the poor in spirit. Okay, go be poor, and then you'll receive the kingdom of heaven. All right, but the problem with this is, well, it's, it's drastic. One is, does the text say, go and be poor? Does Jesus say, go be poor? Does Jesus say, go and mourn? Does he say, go and be meek? No, these are not instructions. And if you're instructing someone versus proclaiming something, your rhetoric is totally different. Right? Like, if I'm telling you something, right? Like, if I'm telling my daughter, you are my daughter. That is different than instructing her on how to be my daughter, right? Like that is, that is fundamentally different language we use. And what Jesus is doing here is not instructing us. The Beatitudes are not a list of instructions. They are not seven steps to get good with God, right? Like it's just not that. that, that if you were to say, because again, he doesn't say go and be poor, go and mourn. He just says blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. He is proclaiming things about the kingdom of God. And again, this changes our perception of it. And so what happens then if it is an instruction list, it really also then just becomes a new form of legalism, right? Because what happens to those who aren't mourning? What happens to those that are well off and not poor? Because Luke says just blessed are the poor. He drops the in spirit. Luke's, Luke's version of this is far more harsh. It is far more kind of blunt. He even then, at, at kind of, if you mirror it with the passage that follows, he said, blessed are the poor. And then a few verses later, he says, woe to those who are rich. He's speaking of money. Like, it's very, like, direct. 
right? And so, so what happens then, if this is instructions, what happens when, when you don't have anyone to mourn? If it's go and mourn, what do I do when my daughter was just born and I have no reason to mourn right now? <laughs> right? Like, we have to understand that these are not instructions. These are proclamations about the kingdom of heaven. Okay, they're not virtues. All right, that may be the other kind of misperception. Now, there are virtues in it. Certainly peacemaking, being merciful, those are, those are virtues that we should kind of work towards, but that's not what Jesus is doing in this text. In other places, Jesus may instruct us to be merciful, but we have to let Jesus kind of define his own words. We have to let Jesus speak for himself. And he's not saying, go and be merciful, go and be a peacemaker. He's saying, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the merciful. And so these aren't virtues that we attain to. Again, there are certainly virtues in it, but it's not what we're getting at. Okay, so it's not instructions, it's not virtues, but rather it is proclamations about the kingdom on the people in front of him, in that crowd. Now, I believe this first one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think it is kind of a preface to what everything that follows. I think everyone that follows kind of falls under this idea of poor in spirit. Now, to understand this one, we have to understand the word poor. And the word poor in Greek is patokoi. Okay, patokoi. And patokoi is an onomatopoeia. All right, so an onomatopoeia, for those who don't remember, that's like bam or splat, right? It's a word that sounds like its definition. Okay? So what Jesus is doing is when he says, blessed are the patokoi, patokoi kind of sounds like you're spitting on someone. Right? That's the essence of this word. Okay, there are two words for the word poor. Right, like financially, like speaking of finance, there are two words. And the author, what Jesus says here, he chooses patokoi, which isn't like working class, barely making it to pay the bills, college student, right, would fit in there. Like that's not the word he's using. The word he's using is like abject poverty, like the one on the gutter that's begging that we spit at because they're like, they're failures. It is harshly. It is a negative term which is another reason I don't think they're instructions because no one, it would make no sense to try to attain patokoi. Right? Like he is saying the one in abject poverty, the one most of us avoid, the one that we cross the street so we don't have to encounter, he says, blessed is that one. Blessed are the poor. And think about it. He goes on, he says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not theirs will be. Not once they get their act together. Not once they get back on their feet. Instead, he says, in the gutter or in the ditch. For the Lord is there and I didn't even know it. He's saying blessed are the patokoi, the poor, the ones in abject poverty that have nothing to offer, that could do nothing to get back on their feet. God is with you. God is on your side, the poor, the, the, ab the ones that we push to the side. Because again, if we're honest, if we're really honest with ourselves, when we see poor people, we think they're failures right? Like in our minds, we don't say it like that because that's really crass, but we think they have made choices that have caused them and they are in that position because of their choices, their failures. Jesus sees them and he says, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. He says, it's present. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. I mean, this goes against anything that the crowd would have thought, like, there is nothing they could have done. The crowd would have, like, gasped. Like, we get a picture after this why people wanted to kill Jesus after he preached often. It's because he would say things that were so counterintuitive, that were so against the way, against the grain of the world. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the king. Blessed are the pathetic. 
Blessed are those who don't deserve it. Blessed are the ones who are unblessable. He says, blessed are the patoko. And then when Matthew adds that in spirit, I think he's also then painting this picture of blessed are the spiritual zeros. Blessed are the ones who don't know the scriptures, who don't know how to pray, who don't read their Bible. Blessed are not only the economic poor, but also the spiritually poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. God is on the side of those in abject poverty. The ones that can do nothing, God is there. So let's run through the the rest of these to kind of see how this works as a preface to all the others. So Jesus, again, all of this under the banner of repent for the kingdom of heaven. Now think differently about the world for the kingdom is here. So he goes on in verse 4. He says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Okay, those who mourn, who are hurt, who are broken, who have been beat up by life. Like when you're in a moment of mourning is that there is nothing you can do, right? Like you have nothing to offer in a state of mourning. You're just weeping. You're just experiencing loss. You are just mourning. He says, blessed are those who are hurt and broken and are wounded and can't do anything to get themselves back. Blessed are the, the, those who mourn. Then he goes on, he says, blessed are the meek. And the meek is really, we've, we've tried to, again, because we're Westerners, we want to turn this into a list so bad, we do things with the word meek to try to kind of soften it. But what it really means is under the control of. Or a lot of people now are translated as blessed are those who are oppressed, who are crushed by the system. And he's preaching this in first century Israel that is a crushed and oppressed by Rome. That there's a kingdom that they are, they are this small people in the corner of the Roman Empire that if they were to ever take up arms, they would be slaughtered. Like they stood, they were oppressed beyond like the levels we can understand. That he's preaching this to them and he's saying, blessed are those who are oppressed. Blessed is the little guy. Blessed is the one who is used and abused by the powers that be. Blessed are those who suffer without any resources to counterattack. Like there is nothing Israel could do. They were just at the, the, at the will of the Roman Empire. And he says, blessed are those who are used and abused by the powers that be. Then he goes on, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Okay, again, we, when we spiritualize this or make this a list, we look at this and say, oh, this must be the ones who really want God. Like they're desperate for God. They're, they're passionate and they want to pursue God. But what, what happens, I think, when you're hungry and thirsty is at its core, at its base level, it means you don't have something, right? You don't have food. Because there are times when we can hunger and thirst and not want food and water. Like in February when you're fasting, right? Like, like there are times when we can experience hunger and thirst and we don't necessarily want it. It's because we hunger and thirst because we're without it. So Jesus is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He's saying, blessed are the ones who don't have righteousness. And he's saying this in front of the religious establishment who centered their life on religious teaching, who had righteousness, who had it through their actions. And what Jesus is saying is blessed are the ones who've made decisions in life where they don't have their righteousness. Blessed are the ones who continually make decisions that lead them away from God. Jesus says, blessed are they. I am with them. I am on their side. The ones who hunger and thirst for right living, but they can't find it because they make the wrong choices. Jesus says, blessed are those. They're hungry and thirsty, but they're in a cycle of poor choices. He says, I'm with them. My presence is there with them in their wrong decisions. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
Then he gets blessed are the merciful. And again, mercy, certainly a virtue that is worth kind of pursuing, but Jesus here is saying something much different. He's saying, blessed are the merciful. And think about it, in first, the first century world, it is a brutal, violent, bloody world. Mercy is not something that would help you climb the ladder, right? Maybe the best picture we can have is humility, right? Is, is we, you know, in our world, if we're honest, like, I mean, just watch, watch what's going on in our political season right now, right? Like, humility is not something that gets us further, Right, like in our world, humility is not something that's going to allow you to climb the ladder. And so this picture is in a first century world where it's brutal and it's violent, that if you're merciful, you will be crushed by Rome. That if you're, if, if you're the merciful, you're like the shy group. It's like Jesus is saying, blessed are the shy ones off in the corner who won't fight. Blessed are those. Blessed are the, the humble. Blessed are the ones who won't kind of like speak up and fight for themselves. Blessed are the merciful. And then he goes on, blessed are the pure in heart. And pure in heart, Kierkegaard famously said, you know, purity of heart is to will one thing. But I think the problem with that is, is yes, purity in heart is something we want to pursue, but those that are pure in heart are perfectionists. They're the ones that nothing's ever good enough for them. Right? Like, like if you're around a perfectionist, they get awfully annoying because you're never good enough for them. Right, like nothing they do, they're the hardest on themselves. Nothing they do is ever good enough. Nothing that, that you do is ever good enough. And so Jesus is saying for those that refuse to, like, to, to be just content with what God's given, God is with them. God is on their side. Then he goes, blessed are the peacemakers. And the peacemakers, again, in a first century world, in a world that is riddled with violence, the peacemaker, although a good thing, right, generally would be believed. Like the Jews in this time, they were hungry for war against Rome. Like, this is why they often mistake Jesus for a military figure. They wanted, like, Rambo Jesus to come and blow up the, the Romans. Like, that's what they wanted. They are bloodthirsty. They wanted someone who would fight on their behalf. So maybe a better way to say peacemaker in this context is traitor. It's like the peacemakers in Jesus' time, they're the Jews who are too cowardly to fight. The peacemakers are the ones who, who would stay off to the side, who would refuse to, to fight against Rome, and so the Jews would believe them as traitors. Or you have the other perspective, right? Rome pushed this idea of Pax Romana, which was I'm going to come in, I'm going to annihilate your town, I'm going to dehumanize you, I'm going to strip you of your culture, I'm going to establish you as a Roman colony, and then I'm going to call it peace, right? And Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who won't enter the cycle of violence. Blessed are those who refuse, who, who we consider traitors. He says, blessed are they. I am with them. I am on their side. Those that refuse to fight, I am there. And lastly, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Right, those who, who stand up for the things of God and like the people of God, the way, like Jesus' followers in this time were considered ridiculous. Like they were certainly persecuted. Far beyond, like, the, the persecution we may face. Like, a bad Facebook post about Christianity is not really persecution, all right? <laughs> Let's get beyond that, okay? Is, is he saying, blessed are those who, for righteousness' sake, are persecuted, are talked bad about, are pushed against, all of that blessed are they. You see, Jesus stands before this mixture of humanity, and he throws this invitation saying that the kingdom of God is among everyone. It is there. It is present. And again, as we read the Gospels, one of the things that is most terrifying for me is Jesus chooses to spend time with the people I often ignore. 
Like Jesus, more often than not, spends time with those who I avoid, who I walk around, who I lock my eyes in the ground when I walk by, because Jesus is spending this time, he's saying that the kingdom of God is there, right? Like whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done unto me. He associates himself with the poor, with the patokoi, with the bottom, with the marginalized, with the oppressed, with those that we think are unblessable, that don't deserve anything, The ones that, I mean, it is a counterintuitive, radical proclamation of a gospel that the people in the crowd would have just been like, what? The kingdom of God is with them? Like those that we hate, those that we avoid, and even that language, like those. Like we we know the those in our lives. We won't talk about it, but we know it. And Jesus is saying, blessed are those. Blessed are the ones who you don't think deserve blessing. And what he does is he attacks this if-then principle, which is what I, what I, what I call it. It's this, this idea in religion that if I do this, then God will do this. If it's a list, if it's imperatives, if it's instructions, it's if I am poor in spirit, then God will give me the kingdom of heaven. But again, the problem with this, I think, is twofold. And we do this, we do this all over the place. We, um, as a youth pastor, I, I taught about sexuality a lot. Right? And this is one of the, the spaces I think it happens most frequently, is we say things like, if you wait till marriage to have sex, then God will give you the greatest sex life of all time. But then you're married for three years, and everything changes, and you're like, what happened? I waited. Right? <laughs> right? Like, come on. Like, we know this. It's okay. <laughs> like, we talk about this, and we, we preach this like it's in our bones, and we have to catch ourselves because it's so easy to slip into this if-then thinking. Okay, it says, if I read my Bible, if I go to church and don't miss a Sunday for 30 years, if this happens, then God, you'll give me the marriage, the life, and I won't get cancer. Like, like we think about this, and so what he's doing is, is, is the first problem with the if-then is we will fail. Okay, we will fail. If this is true, this is a form of legalism that we will fail at. We will not be able to get up every morning and read our Bible for 13 hours a day. Like, it won't happen. Kids poop in the middle of the night, and I have to get up and change my diaper, and I sleep in a little later. Right? Like, like things happen in life. We won't be able to attain the righteousness that we desire. We won't be able to live to the standard where then God will owe us. Okay, so that's kind of the first failure. The second failure is that some of us will succeed. Some of us will go to church for 30 years without missing a Sunday. Some of us will read our Bibles, and then... When the job loss happens, when the divorce comes, when cancer hits, we shake our fists at the heavens saying, God, you owe us. I paid my dues. You owe me. And even now I see it in your faces, you realize how ridiculous that sounds. Right? Like like this if-then idea that, again, is in our bones. It's so deep in us. It's rooted there. What Jesus does in the Beatitudes is he confronts it and he says, listen, blessed are the patokoi. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those on the fringes. Blessed are they. I am with them. I am on the side of the the, the enemy. I'm on the side of them. And this is so, like, if you're not nervous right now, I don't think you fully get it. Like, honestly, like, this is the third time I've preached it this weekend, and I still get nervous. I'm like, is this really true? Is this really what the gospel means? Because the problem with this is then we have to wrestle with the question of can Jesus be trusted? Because then it's like, okay, if I follow Jesus, that means he can bless my ex. Or he can bless my boss that I hate. He can bless my enemy. Right? Like, think about that. 
We don't want that, if we're honest. We got to do some work in us to want a God like that, who blesses the unblessable, who blesses our enemies. It's a radical, challenging, difficult to swallow message of the kingdom of God. And to put it maybe in a bit of our language, I think it goes like this. It's blessed are those who have no reason to be blessed. Blessed are the arrogant. Blessed are the narcissists. Blessed are the pathetic, the wretched, the too fat, the too skinny, the smelly, those who don't believe in God, the sinners and the tax tax collectors. God is on their side. Blessed are the twisted, the repulsive, the deformed, the prostitutes, the alcoholics. Blessed are those who are pregnant too many times and at the wrong times. Blessed are the depraved, the thieves, the corrupt, the cheaters, the liars. Blessed are the ones that we don't want to bless. Jesus throws this unbelievably challenging message. He says, the ones you don't think of, the patokoi, the ones in the gutter, I am with them. I am on their side. The kingdom is present to all here and now. We just enter it. We just step into it. It is the blessing of God on all of humanity that it is here. And what he's going to go on to do is he's going to call them the salt and light of the world. He's not only going to say they're blessed, he's going to say, through them, I change the world. And we'll talk about that in about three weeks or so. He's going to say that the ones, the, the ones that are pushed aside and marginalized, the oppressed, they're the ones that are going to be the salt and the light of the world. They're going to turn everything upside down. Like, and, and again, we, we get this. A, f- a few weeks ago, or actually a few months ago, I was preaching at this church down in kind of Central Valley, California, little tiny church, old church, and it was, to be honest, it's a dying church. I mean, it's, it doesn't have much longer. Um, there was probably, gosh, 15 people in the audience um, in a room about half this size, and, and in there was this old beat-up building, um, small crowd, and as I'm preaching, this, this homeless woman is sitting up in the front row, and I remember that it, like, caught my eye, and I remember as I'm preaching, it was difficult for me to kind of, like, reconcile this because it's just like she doesn't belong here like like she doesn't match the audience here and and so I remember like as I'm preaching her 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 kind of presence there which it was kind of her up front and then you guys this service is a little better everyone else in the other services at here they like sit in the the back they're like in the splash zone they don't mean like spit on them but like she was sitting here and like the 15 others in the audience they were kind of like four rows back and she was all by herself and I remember just kind of like feeling it was out of place. And so after the service, I'm standing in the aisle and I'm talking with, with someone else. And all of a sudden I see her come walking towards me. And I get nervous, right? Like, like and I don't feel like I'm alone on that. But I get nervous because she's different. And I pray that God works in me that, I, I, that that feeling doesn't just arise when people that are different than me come. But, but she comes up to me and I'll never forget. She comes up and she just kind of pulls me aside. She whispers, thank you, and kisses me on the cheek and walks off. And I remember just like, like the Lord was in that place and I didn't even know it. That like that kiss from her, just that subtle gesture was like, it blessed me. It was like that was the presence of Jesus for me. That I had overlooked, that I had pushed off to the side, that I was nervous about. I had just put her off over here and she comes up and, and the Lord was in that place and I didn't even know it. See, church, God shows up in all sorts of crazy places. He shows up in all the places we don't expect, all the places that we're nervous to go to. God is there. He is present. He is on the side of the poor of the Patokoi. And so for you here who are pushed down, who've been oppressed, for you whose, whose lives aren't put together, who can't make the right decisions, blessed are you. For you who, who maybe your marriage has suffered because of decisions you've made, blessed are you. 
If you're here and you can't stop going to the wrong websites, blessed are you. God is on your side. The kingdom of heaven is present here and now it is breaking into this world and this should make us nervous. But God is here. He has blessed this place. He has blessed your life. He is pulling us towards the kingdom of heaven more and more and more. So will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we... um, God, humbled doesn't even seem to fit, um, uncomfortable, nervous, Lord, whatever it is, Lord, the, the, the call of the kingdom, Lord, over all of us is something that is unsettling. And so, Lord, I pray that, that you give us eyes in our own lives to find the way that we are the poor. We are the ones that are oppressed. But, God, more, more so, may we go with new eyes for people. May we go with a heart that is open to others. We go with a spirit of seeing people the way you see them because, God, you have declared that you are with them. You are with the other. God, that this is a universal claim of the kingdom of God. The invitation is for everyone. And so, Lord, help us to have new eyes. Help us to have new hearts. Help us to see people differently. Help us to recognize that you are present here and we don't even know it. God, we thank you for that that offer. We thank you for your love, for your grace. We thank you for communion that we're about to take. Lord, we just thank you for being a God who proclaims blessing over everyone. God, we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. Thank you, Kevin. I don't know about you guys, but um, sometimes when I read scripture, I feel like I skip across the surface of it. But if I pause, if I stop to reflect a little bit, I, I sink in and I find a lot more depth. And I know um, as we pause on the Sermon on the Mount, I'm finding depth there as well. But um, I'd love to read just a passage for us this morning that I've, I've found some depth in over the last few weeks. Colossians 1, 25 to 27 says, I have become its servant. Um, this, this message, the, the gospel, by, by, and this is Paul writing, by the commission that God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that's the part I really wanted to, to highlight, that I just kind of read those words and thought, yeah, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And as I paused on that, though, I realized how profound that was, that this mystery that is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not Christ near you. It's not Christ accessible to you, but, but Christ in you, in you. And that, that often when I pause, those moments cause me to wonder at God um, and just have wonder at who he is. Because the God that created the universe, my Savior, um,